We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 as we close out uh, John's letter uh, this morning. Um, I have a, a confession to make to you. Um, I, I, I take pride in knowing who I am uh, fairly well. I know what I like, I know what I don't like, and I know uh, what I won't let myself go do uh, because of how I know myself. And so there's one month out of all 12 that I hate religiously. And it is October. Um, and it's not because of pumpkin spice lattes or Ugg boots. Um, it's because of Halloween. I, and if you want to try to scare me later, that's fine. I hate, hate, hate willingly subjecting myself to being scared. I loathe haunted houses. I hate scary movies. In October, we just play a lot of worship music in our house and pray for Jesus to return. Because um, <laughs> my wife hates it too. Uh, but in college... Um, I, I knew this about myself even in college. And one time I let the, the pull of the crowd get to me. And so um, we went, a group of us went to watch the remake. And I'm not in any way advocating this movie. We went to watch a remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, <laughs> such a bad idea. Such a bad idea. Um, so we went on Halloween night to see it. So the movie, I get through the movie just fine. I never once screamed. I jumped one time more than anybody else on our row. Um, but the movie's over, and so they bring the house lights up, and the credits are, are rolling, and I'm ready to go. I've had enough. I want to go home and go to bed and pray that I wake up not dead in the morning. And all of a sudden, I hear the lovely sound of something being cranked. And from underneath the movie screen... The curtains lift, and a guy with a chainsaw walks out. And he, somebody at the movie theater thought this was a good idea. It wasn't. It was terrible. So I, was, I literally was scared to death. So I turned. I didn't even check. I was like, every man for themselves. I took off <laughs> at a dead sprint out of that movie theater, which in and of itself is not something you want to be known for. But one poor girl did not see the freight train that was Chris Wilson coming down that aisle. And I knocked a poor girl to her rear end in the middle. I was like, hey, if you died, it's your own fault. You should have got out of the way. But I, was, I literally got so scared that when I ran, I just ran over this poor girl. I got to the top of the ramp of the movie seat. I turned around because I was sure there was going to be blood everywhere. And everybody that I went with was just doubled over laughing because he had already stopped the deal because so many people took off running. I wasn't the only one, but they were just pointing and laughing hysterically. And so I tell you that story, number one, so you laugh a little bit. Number two is because John, as he closes out his letter, what he wants to remind the readers of over these last few verses is that they would know who they are in Christ and that they would work to not subject themselves to moments and situations where they're out of their element and they're put in a position where they may compromise the truths of the gospel. That the crowd wouldn't hold such sway over them, that the world wouldn't hold such sway over them, that they would put themselves in a compromising situation, not where you may run over a poor 95-pound girl leaving a movie theater because you're scared, but that you may be tempted to want to renounce or walk away from your faith or make compromises with 
the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at in 1 John 5, 19 through 21. Um, before we get started, let me open this in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for today. We're grateful for the truth of the gospel. We're grateful that you alone have called us, you have saved us, you have washed us, you have made us new. You have taken our heart of stone and you have given us a heart of flesh. And you have given us true, everlasting freedom. And for that, our hearts are forever and eternally grateful. And so it's the gospel that gathers us this morning. It's the gospel that informs the songs that we sing and the words that are taught. And so, Father, we pray that throughout all of this, that our hearts' affections would be drawn to you, that you would, through the power of your Spirit, stir up a conviction of sin in our life, that we would freely confess and repent because we know that we are yours in Christ. So, Father, we're grateful for the witness of John in his letter. We're thankful that it is in your scripture, that it is still living and active and it is able to teach us truth and make us wise unto salvation. And so, Father, we are grateful for all those things. And we pray this morning that Jesus above all else would be worshiped and would be glorified. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. First John five nineteen through 21, uh, I'll read those and then we'll kind of just unpack them verse by verse. Uh, starting in verse 19, First John 5 says this, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so John in 19 picks up and offers some more affirmation of what he covered in 18 that Todd preached on last week. And then he gives a few other bits of encouragement. And then he closes with a very somber but a very serious warning to those who would read or hear this letter. And so in verse 19, John writes, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so John, as he closes out this letter, he comes back to part of what's driven him to write this letter in the first place, which is the rampant Gnostic heresy that's beginning to gain traction in the church that he's writing to. And so he writes again to them to encourage them to know this, that they are in God and that the rest of the world lies in the power of the evil one. And so there should be a marked difference between those who profess Christ and everyone else who's living both in first century and now in the year 2015. And as you read these words of John, and I was getting ready, I think what would help you this week to go back and maybe unpack these last few words that John writes is to go to John's gospel. And he has a large block of Jesus teaching John chapter 14 through John chapter 17 is kind of one of the longest continual runs of Christ teaching recorded in scripture. And in that Jesus is preparing the disciples for his uh, impending death and resurrection and ascension. And so he's helping them better understand what life is going to look like because of what he's going to accomplish on the cross and what will be the state of them after the Holy Spirit has come in and given them new hearts and new lives. And so if you want to maybe better understand some of John's writing here, go back to John's gospel and read those four chapters at some point this week and familiarize yourself with some of the teachings of Jesus as he got ready to face the crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection and ascension. But John is echoing some of what Jesus taught there, especially as it regards how we as believers 
relate to the world. And so if you hold your hand there and you want to flip over to the gospel of John, John chapter 15, we're going to read 18 verses 18 and 19. And again, this is Jesus delivering just a large bit of teaching to his disciples right before, as John's gospel records it, he heads to the garden to pray and then is ultimately arrested and crucified. And so John records Jesus' words as this, as he's talking about the fallout of him actually being the savior of the world. Jesus writes this to comfort his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so for both Jesus as he's getting ready to go to the cross and for John as his own natural life is winding down and he's writing one of the last few correspondences he'll have with the church uh, believers They both echoed this reality that the life of a believer should categorically look different than the life of a non-believer. And Jesus goes so far as to say the difference in your life will be to the point that the world will start to hate you because you don't go along with everything that they're doing. And why do we not go along with everything that, we're, everything that the world is doing? Because as 1 John tells us, if you're not in Christ, then you're under the power of the evil one. And so it is unnatural for us as believers to constantly walk hand in hand, stride for stride with the world. It may mean that we are put in uncomfortable situations and it may mean that we are made fun of and mocked and ridiculed and for some the world over it means that they face and walk through death for being not willing to toe the line of the world. And so John writes and he says, look, understand this, Gnostic heresy probably isn't going to go anywhere in your lifetime. So be okay with being under the rule and reign of the one true king and know that it may make your life and it should make your life look different than the world. And is there really any more pertinent text? Like we could almost stop there, unpack the societal implications for us right now today. Say amen, go home and extend First John by another week. Because where we're at right now in 200, was yesterday 239 years, I think, or something like that of America being a nation Where we're at right now, especially in the South, is we're at the point now where we can't make the assumption that the society at large is going to give us a thumbs up and a wink for living out our Christian convictions. We're at the point where believing in Jesus can't be something you do because it's convenient and everybody else does it. Now the call for us, just like the call for John to his first century readers and hearers, is to hold fast to what we know to be true because we don't ultimately live for this world. We live for the world and the kingdom that is to come. And so we can go through persecution. We can go through hard times. We can go through being misunderstood because we cling fast to the truths of the gospel. And so John writes and he says... Know that you are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus elevates it to say that don't worry, the the world at some point because of the message of the need for a savior will hate you for it. 
And so we don't stand here in 2015 completely disconnected from all of the witness of biblical history. We actually stand right in line with what we know to be true from Scripture, namely that believers who stand firm and hold to the core convictions of the truth of the gospel as revealed to us in the Word of God may at times face persecution or distrust or be slandered or gossiped about, and that is perfectly okay. Because how we respond to events like the Supreme Court marriage ruling on marriage, like the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage, there it is, or how we respond to racism when it rears its head in Charleston, now we're, we're not looked at for hearing why we believe what we believe, but we're now looked at from society zeroing in on the church to see if we'll actually be faithful to live out what we believe. That we would not only grow in a head knowledge, and we'll get to this a little later in the text, but we would not only get a head knowledge of who God is and who God says he is, but that we would gain a heart knowledge that would convict us to take the truth of God that we know and put it into action through the hard, nasty work of loving our neighbor as ourself. And so John writes and says, this is the case. This is what you must go through, and it's true for us even today. And so we stand knowing that scripture affirms that to stand with the truth of the gospel and to be on the wrong side of society is to actually be on the right side of history. And so John writes and says, this is where we go. And so today, I, I think maybe one of the best prayers, remember two weeks ago, we talked about praying prayers that God delights to answer. Not praying prayers that we don't know how we may answer, but praying prayers that we know God would be gracious and loving and willing to answer even as we pray them. And as, as I work through this text this week, I think one of the greatest prayers we could pray as a church body consistently is for a heightened level of discernment in how we engage the culture and the world around us. We have to understand what is going on in the culture around us. You cannot take the gospel to people and share with them the answers if you don't know the questions that they're asking. And so you have to be at some level aware of what is going on in the world and what is happening. Head in the sand evangelism doesn't work because you show up with the right message to answer the wrong questions in the wrong manner and you don't see people come to Christ. You see people alienated and pushed away by a message that they perceive to be hateful and unloving and disingenuous. And so we have to work, we have to pray that God would give us a heightened sense of discernment to know how to engage properly the culture and the context we live with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because whether it's racism, whether it's the fallout of the shrapnel of same-sex marriage and that ruling and how it will work to shape our society over the coming years. What we are called to do as believers is to properly engage with the culture so that when, not if, but when living in sin ultimately lets these people down to the point that they're ready to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, we have earned the right to share that with them because we don't show up and say, see, I told you so. We, we show up and we're empathetic and we say, let me help you understand how Jesus can forgive your sin. And so we pray for discernment that we would properly engage society around us. And then John goes on in verse 20 and he says this, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding 
so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so John, as he's wrapping up, writing to these believers, he writes to remind them and to reassure them that they can know God and they can know Christ because Christ has given the knowledge, Christ has given the wisdom, and Christ has given the understanding through salvation to everyone who is a believer. The knowledge of God for John's readers was available and is available even now to every one of us. It wasn't just for the spiritually elite. It's not just for the pastors or the deacons or the elders. The truths of God and the gospel as it's recorded in scripture It's for everyone who is a believer to be able to read and know and rightly understand the true knowledge of who God is, who Christ is, and the whole story that they have been telling from the beginning of the creation of the world until Christ returns. And so John writes and says, you do know the truth because any spiritual knowledge that you gain in life, both for John's readers and for us, is a gift from God. You don't go out and obtain spiritual knowledge for yourself. That is not, first and foremost, a generous, gracious revealing of God to you through his word or through various other ways that he sometimes chooses to speak or reveal himself. But primarily through his word, everyone can know for certain who God is, who Christ is, and what salvation is and how to live in right relation to God the Father. And so John writes and says, don't think that the heresy that only certain people can know the real truth about God is actually true. You have to reject what is false, which is that there's some extra knowledge laying out there somewhere, and you graciously accept the true knowledge that you have of God through Christ as a gift, and then you let that form and shape how you engage with a world that lies in the power of the evil one. So you see how John fits this together? He tells us that we've got to think about we're in the kingdom of the Father, so our lives look different from how we we interact with those who are in the world and live under the rule and reign of the evil one. But then John gives us a little insight into how we go about living out that discernment. It's that we would drill down into knowing the truth of who God is. And there's really for us one way primarily to do that. And that is through being people who cannot go a day, not in a legalistic sense, but in a love of the father sense, we can't go a day without being in the scriptures to have our hearts and our minds informed about the real reality and the real truth of who God is in the face of all that's going on, especially in the world around us to recast God in the image of man. And so John writes and says, you can know the truth. You can know God and you can know that you're in him. And so what John is advocating for here is actually two different kinds of knowledge that make up what he's referring to when he says that we can know Christ. And he's actually echoing the words of Christ himself here. If you still have your hand over in John, if you flip over in John 17, where Jesus is starting out the high priestly prayer as most scripture or Bibles break it down and give you that section of his teaching As Jesus begins to pray for the believers in and the believers to come, he says this regarding eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so for us, 
The words of Christ help us better understand what John's talking about when he says that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and that we may know that he is the true God and eternal life. John is advocating that we would know Christ well, and we know Christ and we know the Father well through two primary ways. One is through the gaining of empirical knowledge by what you're able to read and understand and ingest that informs your mind and how you think and how you process what's going on around you. And so we have to always be thinking on and remembering and putting ourselves deeply rooted in the word of God so that our minds would be informed of the truth of who God is. And so we gain empirical knowledge through reading of the scripture and through reading other books that help us better understand who God is, who Christ is, who we are, how salvation works, what all of history is headed towards, and how God has been loving and gracious through all of history to those who he would call to himself. And so we gain that head knowledge. But the problem if you just have head knowledge is this. The problem if you just know scripture is this. Is that I can know a lot of head knowledge. And I can still find a way to rationalize my own sin. Because head knowledge isn't necessarily enough in and of itself to affect a change in how I live my day-to-day life. It may mean that I know how to answer all the questions. It may mean that people think I have a certain amount of knowledge and wisdom. But ultimately, if it's just head knowledge, what it does in me and what it does in the life of a believer, if you just center yourself around knowing Christ primarily in your head, is you become a legalist who becomes really good at pointing out all the sins and all the faults in others without ever having your heart broken over your own sin. And so there's one way that we have to grow in our knowledge of Christ, and that's through reading and learning. But there's also a second way that we grow in our knowledge of God and Christ, and that is through our own personal experience. There is experiential knowledge that we gain as believers as we walk out the truth of the gospel in our day-to-day life that informs and changes how we live and act in the world around us. And so when empirical knowledge and our understanding of knowing God and knowing Christ is matched with a heart that has experienced and knows the true, good, loving nature of the Father, then we find it more and more likely that we will have the capacity to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness because our hearts have been changed. Because if, if empirical righteousness, if empirical knowledge was all we needed for true righteousness, then the old covenant could have saved people. But did the old covenant save anyone? No, because just knowing in your head the truth or the law of God is not enough. That's why when you read in Ezekiel and you read in Isaiah and you read in the prophets, they all talk about the need for there to be a heart change, that we could feel the conviction and the weight of our sin personally so that we would know our need for a savior and we would confess and repent and we would love others well in light of the gospel. And so we have to take both what we can know through reading and what we experience personally. As Romans says, Paul writes that the love of Christ has been, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit as we know these things, as we 
experientially know and believe and trust in the good heart of our Father, then we're able to properly engage with the world around us. But both of those areas of knowledge take committed times of being with your Father through not only reading the Scripture, which helps inform our head, but through prayer, which helps inform our heart. And when prayer starts to inform our heart, then we don't get swept away in the emotions. We don't get swept away in wanting to feel sorry for everyone. But as we pray and as our experiences are molded and shaped by the gospel, then we're able to do, as Paul talks about in Ephesians, speak the truth in love. But you can only speak the truth in love when you both know the truth in your head and you know the truth in your heart. And so John pleads with, his, with the believers and he says, we know the son of God has come and has given us understanding and we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so that is the great aim and goal of part of why John wrote this letter in the first place was so that you could know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a believer and a true son and a true daughter of God to the point that it would begin to affect the way that you live out your faith in the world around you. And then John closes with this. 1 John five twenty one, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So John closes his letter with a great word of warning to his congregation. We all know, I'm not going to revisit, hopefully you all remember what little children means. Everybody tracking with that? I don't need to go back and explain it for roughly the 38th time, maybe 37th time um, in the book. John, when he writes and says little children, he's talking to everyone that he's writing to, the whole congregation, the whole body of this church. And he says, keep yourselves from idols. So John writes, and for his believers who would have heard it, what they would have known to be true, what John was writing to help them see and understand. The, John doesn't end with a grace to you and peace to you like Paul does in most of his letters. John leaves us with a somber warning because he knows that they'll read this letter, they'll hear this letter read, and then they'll have a tendency to forget all that John has encouraged them to about not giving in to the Gnostic heresy. And so John writes because... Sometimes the best words that we can speak or let others know are the last words we share with people. Are the last words, I mean, you know all the ends of all the great movies, you know the last words, the really good movies, you remember the last words that were spoken right before the screen fades to black and you get up and walk out. And this is why John writes these words, is he wants them to have a little bit of a sticking power to help remind and encourage those believers that they are not to give themselves to the idol of Gnostic heresy. And so John wants to encourage them because what John knew to be true, what John has encouraged us in, in three, John has encouraged us primarily in three ways throughout this letter. He's encouraged us to know without a shadow of a doubt that we are secure, redeemed believers in God through Jesus Christ and we're adopted sons and daughters. He's written so that we would know that for certain. 
He's also written to encourage us to allow our love for God to continue to grow and to continue to blossom and develop in our life. And so he's written for those two reasons. And lastly, he's written to encourage the believers in that context to continually put the faith in God that they should be sure of, that they're seeing grow, that should have an outflow in the way that they love and serve their brothers and sisters. And so those are the three primary encouragements that John has given throughout the letter. And so when John closes with keep yourselves from idols, he's closing with what he knows will be the surefire way to not progress in the three areas that he's written to encourage the believers. Because idols always, always, always cause us to question our salvation. They hinder our love for God and they hinder our love for others. And so John writes, keep yourselves from idols. One of my favorite movies, um, a cinematic masterpiece, really, is um, Ace Ventura 2, <laughs> When Nature Calls. Um, I, don't, I still don't understand how Jim Carrey has never won an Oscar. Um, but, you know, there's a chance, maybe one day. But in the movie, if you don't know, I can't go into a full, uh, I, won't, I used to quote it from start to finish. But anyway, Ace Ventura is called out to this African village to help locate their sacred bat that has been taken. And as he gets to the village, the village chief and a translator take him into the sacred uh, bat sanctuary. And as they go in, uh, and I believe the name of the group was the Wachudu tribe. You can check me on that. I'm pretty sure that's right. They go in and, and they look and there's this big shrine in this hut that is built to this sacred bat. And the bat's missing and the translator tells him he, he's getting ready to walk up and examine the cage like a good detective would. And the translator stops him and says, no, 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 you can't step right there. That's reserved for only the priest and the shaman and the medicine man. Like you have to be someone high up in this tribe to be able to stand right there and be on that sacred space. And so he draws back and they keep talking. And then as the camera, as they kind of move, he gets behind them. And then he enacts one of my favorite scenes of all time. He starts and he like, they turn their back to him and he like looks and he just puts his toe on there and he pulls it back. And then he puts his toe on there and he pulls it back every time that they turn around. And then he eventually, he jumps up on there and I would almost do a full reenactment, but I want to stay uh, on as a church planning resident. Um, (laughs) But he gets up and he unleashes this crazy dance right on the middle of where they've told him not to be. And then right as they're about to turn around, he jumps off of the highest point and lands and acts like he's not been doing anything. And it's flipping hysterical. And if I tried to reenact it, you would all laugh. But sometimes we treat our idols that way. We read scripture, we gain knowledge in our head and in our heart of what we know that God has called us to, the way that God has called us to live. And then in our own sin-sick heart and minds, because we still have sin at work in our bodies, we wait until we can convince ourselves that we think God is more interested in something else and that he has turned his back on paying us any real attention. And then we run hard after our idols. 
And just like Ace Ventura making a fool of himself, dancing up on this sacred space, we make a fool of ourselves because we run back to the very things we know couldn't satisfy us and couldn't fulfill us. And it's why ultimately they're continually letting us down. It's why one of the graces that led us to faith and belief in Christ. But we think that God gets distracted. We think he loses sight of us. We think he's not paying us any attention. And we go act a fool pursuing our idols. And John says, you have to keep yourself from your idols because it stunts your growth in the gospel and it hinders your love for God and your love for others. And so I don't know, I thought about putting together a list of idols for you this morning, but then the danger is, is that I won't cover your idol and you'll go, phew, thank God he didn't mention that. I don't have to worry about it. I don't know what idols you struggle with, but I know that what John has written here is still true for us today. That we have to work diligently day in and day out to keep ourselves from idols because they haunt us and they stalk us day in and day out. It's what got Adam and Eve in the garden. And from that point on, it has stalked and haunted every person who has ever been born is the desire to worship something other than the true God of the universe and his son, Jesus Christ. And I can guarantee you this today. At some point, you will struggle with sin because you're still living in your mortal body. And if we traced it back far enough, we would find an idol that is rooted in pride that says that you feel like God is holding out on you in one certain regard, and therefore you pursue sin ahead of pursuing Christ. And you forget that in the shed blood and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is everything you would ever need to stand firm in the face of temptation. And once and for all in that moment, God answered emphatically and forever that he loves you and that he is for you. And he would withhold no good thing from you. And so if we want to live lives in the culture that make a difference, we have to be serious as a church of being quick to confess and to repent of our idols. Because you cannot talk to someone about the idolatry of race. You cannot talk to someone about the idolatry of lust that manifests itself in same-sex marriage if you're not willing to own and confess and repent of your own idols and of the sins that are an outflow of the worship of the idol. Because that is the main problem with idolatry in the life of a believer is it hijacks our worship and it leads us to acts of death rather than acts of life that are the mark of a believer in Jesus Christ. And so John writes, keep yourselves from idols. If there's one thing I think that you could remember out of all that we've talked about, if you want to know and grow in the gospel and your love of God and others, put this somewhere where you can see it day in, day out. Never be far from reminding yourself that you must be willing to do the hard work through prayer, through scripture reading, through being in community with other believers to always confess and repent of the idols in your life because they are coming for you. And they want to steal and kill and destroy, which is the hallmark, Jesus said, of the enemy. And so Christ has given us a brain to think and a heart to feel so that we would not be captive to our idols. And so how do we fight 
to help idols not stunt our growth in the gospel, we take John the Baptist's words in John one twenty nine. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if we don't want idols to stunt our growth in the gospel, we have to always be willing to pull our gaze back, to direct our gaze back to the Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. Idols will hinder our ability to truly love God. And so Jesus' teaching in Luke sixteen thirteen says this, No servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can only play games so long with idolatry before it will burn you and you will be exposed to being a false worshiper. You cannot keep up the game. You may be able to do it for a while in private, but eventually your public life will betray you. And you will compromise on the gospel because you lost sight of your first love, which is God the Father. And you let yourself try to serve two masters. And ultimately, you let yourself go to the master, namely yourself, that couldn't fulfill. And it will eventually tell on you. And so Jesus in his teaching says, don't try to serve two masters. And then lastly, idols hinder our ability to love others rightly. James in his epistle writes and says this in James 4 verses One through four, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so scripture is full of warnings of what the natural outflow of giving ourselves repeatedly to idols looks like in our life. We won't behold the sun. We will try to serve two masters. And ultimately, it will show itself most quickly and most condemningly in how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they no longer become people that you look to to love and to serve and to build up in the gospel. They become people that you look to to bolster your self-esteem, your self-image, your self-worth, and they become tools in your hand of destruction because the gospel is not the common bond in that holds you together, but your own need for approval and your own idol worship leads you to betray your very family. So what is our hope? John ends here. But the hope that he gave us, the reason he can end with little children, keep yourselves from idols, is because he gave us this hope in the first chapter of 1 John. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we live a life different than the world. Because we are believers in God and we grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the gospel through reading scripture and through our own encounters with knowing and feeling the love of God towards us as his children. And then we fight idols daily and we do it all knowing that when sin is exposed, when idols are exposed, we have this great promise of scripture that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, help us to be a people who know life change, a deepening love of God, and a more vibrant love for others. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. 
We are grateful that our own sin and our own idolatry is not the final word. The final word is that for those who are believers in you, there is forgiveness if we are willing to be faithful and just to forgive, to confess our sins, God, that you are faithful and just to forgive us. And so we pray that we would be a church that confesses well. Part of our understanding and growing in the gospel and in our love for you and in our love for others is a willingness to confess our sin is a willingness to come before you and own our brokenness so that we could know your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy and then it would overflow in how we treat and interact with those around us. And so God, will we be a city on a hill? Will we, will we be, would we be a light to a lost and dying world? Will we live out of integrity as a body that seeks to make a difference in the city of Greenville? It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.